Good morning. How you doing? You doing well? My name's uh, my name's Peter. I'm uh, I'm one of the leaders here at uh, at the Project Church. Good to have you out this morning. Uh, we're just going to kick straight into uh, the message. I trust you've uh, you've got a Bible there with you. Let me ask you this question to kick us off: How do you go up praying? How do you go up praying? Now, uh, typically, if you ask that question, what people actually think is, uh, is they start thinking about frequency. How do I go up praying? Do I pray enough? But this morning, I'm not talking about frequency. What I'm talking about is content. What sort of things do you pray for? See, prayer is not just about how frequently you pray. Prayer is also about what you pray when you pray. What, what do you actually say to God? Do you pray for your dog? I'm not saying it's wrong to do that, but do you pray for your dog? Your sore ankle, your work, people to become Christians, the church. Do you pray for a car park at Green Central? <laughs> now, some of you think, you probably think you know where I'm headed, right? You think, oh, just be careful here, because he's probably going to have a crack at you about the stuff that you pray, all right? Well, not exactly. And the reason why not exactly is almost any prayer is better than no prayer at all. Isn't that true? Like, let's, let's just do that. At least we're actually talking to God. And you get points for that, all right? Is everyone cool with that? You just get points for it. If you're actually talking to God, let's at least do that, okay? Um, one of the things that's uh, kind of I've noticed in marriage counselling is that it's a lot easier to work out a relational problem between two people who actually talk to each other, albeit aggressively sometimes, than it is to try and sort something out with two people that don't talk to each other at all. Yeah, it's better, it's better to talk. But what can you tell about the size of your vision when you pray? What sort of things do you pray for? See, last week we looked at a prayer by Paul and you might have actually glossed over what he prayed at the end of last week's message. I didn't even draw anyone's attention to it. And you might have just gone, hey, okay, that's nice. It's a nice little thing to put at the end. Didn't even notice it. But today we're actually just going to focus on that a little bit more. So if you can grab your Bibles, go to Ephesians 3 with me. Ephesians 3. We're going to read the whole prayer here. Ephesians 3. You know, last week, I, uh, I trust I spurred you on um, because we have a small vision sometimes. Is that true? Have a finite vision. And at the end of the day, that's, that's probably the function of the fact that we're finite creatures, right? But at the end of the day, God's not finite and he's not limited by anything. So it makes sense that when we pray, we'll actually be thinking not about finite things, but infinite things. Okay, and that's really what my question is at this point in time. Like, when you pray, how big is your vision? Like, if someone sat there and, and, and they weren't God and they said, how big is this person's vision in prayer? What, what would they gather from what you pray? Now, it's not wrong to pray for your dog, but if all you ever did was pray for your dog, that its hip arthritis would travel a little bit better, that, that would be a small vision. Is everyone with me? That's a small vision, Okay. It's not wrong to do that. It's good to do that. The Bible says talk to God about everything, but it's just small, okay? And we don't want to be people, who's with me? We don't want to be people with a small vision, all right? Let's not do something that's pathetic. Let's engage with the grandness of who God is. Let's go. Uh, Ephesians 3, starting at verse 14. For this reason, 
I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Listen to this next line, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's what Paul's praying for. Is that a big vision? Heck yeah, all right? It doesn't get any bigger than that. That is a massive vision. It's like, that's what Paul's praying for. He's going to be filled with all the fullness of God. Go on to verse 20 there. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Here's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at big prayers to a big God. We're going to look at glory and we're going to look at the, uh, the transition that needs to happen between theology and doxology. Go to verse 20 there with me. Verse 20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Paul's just prayed that the Ephesians would be filled with all the fullness of God. Here's the big idea. It is impossible, it is impossible to ask God for too much. It's impossible to ask God for too much. Do you believe that? You see, God's capacity for giving far outweighs our capacity for asking or even imagining. Now, just stop for a minute and think about the human imagination. Think about the last movie you saw, the last CGI movie you saw. The human imagination is vast, isn't it? It's incredible. But it's like way short, galaxy short of God's capabilities. Amen? Galaxy short. And you know what Paul does here? Um, the, the Greek word in there for that, uh, that section there about God can do far more abundantly, it's like God can do super abundantly. I don't know whether you know this, but in the Greek, Paul kind of invents words. And he invents words because the abundance of what God has just can't be captured with a standard word. So he makes one up. It's like, isn't abundantly more? Is it? In itself, abundantly is more, right? But what does he say? In English here, it says, more abundantly. So more of more. Like that, that's what God can do. God can do all that kind of stuff. I remember uh, there was a teacher, I won't name him, uh, even though... He impacted me greatly, but there was a teacher at the school here uh, that I used to be in a staff support group, and we'd get together once a week on a school morning, we'd pray, right? And uh, the guy had, an, had just a vivid imagination when he prayed. So we'd sit there, and he'd start praying, and I'd just go, where, where are you getting this stuff from, you know? And it wasn't that it was wrong. He just used his imagination. He goes, and God, here's what I'd love to see happen here. I'd love to see you do this. And then I want you to do that. And then I want to see this happen. I want that to happen with that person. And he would just actually use his imagination when he prayed. And they were big, big prayers. And it really, really impacted me. He would just sit there and imagine how a situation could play out well and then ask God for it. Because you can never ask God for too much. And I'd sit there praying theologically correct prayers, maybe, sometimes, and wonder, where did you get that from? Well, he got it from his imagination. You know, and there's something about that that's biblical. There's something about that that's true, all right? 
if you don't pray with imagination, you've got anemic prayers. Amen? You just do. You need to have imagination. Now, God doesn't always do the things that you want him to do, but I tell you what, he, he's got much more to give than you can even imagine to ask. Now, here's the thing. I just want to just stop for a minute uh, at this point. And let's be honest, we get stuck sometimes with prayer, right? And we get stuck, I think, when God doesn't do stuff that we pray for. Who's ever had that happen? It's like you pray for something and he doesn't do it and maybe you don't even say it out loud, right? But you just get stuck. You just go, yeah, okay. So he used my imagination. I prayed something big and he did something else. Huh? I'm just going to stop praying then. And you don't say it out loud, but you say it inside, right? Yeah, well, it doesn't make any difference. My prayers just bounce off the ceiling. You know, and sometimes other people come to us and they quote verses like John 14, verse 14. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus said, what is going on? I finish every prayer with in Jesus' name at the end. All right? And he's not doing it. Like, seriously, why don't I have that Skoda car now? You know, I... I prayed in Jesus' name last week and it's not happening, right? Some people are going to Skoda. I'm going to buy a Skoda. A Kia Carnival then, all right? I'm just going to have a drink now. Is praying in Jesus' name some kind of incantation that you say and it's like a mystical magic trick? No, it's not. Not when you think about what someone's name is biblically someone's name biblically are, uh, are their character and what they stand for and, and, and their purposes you know so when we pray in Jesus's name what are we doing we're actually wanting to stand in full accord with what his name stands for we want to stand in accord with his character and his purposes and the same guy that that verse John 14 verse 14 the same guy John wrote this in 1 John 5 verse 14 and this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will he hears us so a good question at this point, um, which some of you might be asking, is, okay, so, all right, so what's according to his will? Well, here's the thing. I'm, we could get right into some really deep theology here, but I don't want to spend the time on it today going right into it. But here's a big idea. Um, I, I just want you to think broadly and specifically, all right? In a broad kind of sense, we can work out what God's overall will and his purposes are. Amen? We just can, all right? But we don't always know what that actually looks like in the specifics. Okay, we know what it's like in the broad, but we don't always know how it's going to play out in the specifics. And so I've got a couple of concentric circles up there on the screen. Um, and I, I just want to explain this to you. God's broad will on the outside of the things like, yeah, we, we think God's really pleased with this and this is the kind of thing that he wants to do. And so those are really, really good things to pray for. But when it comes down to the actual specifics about how that plays out... Uh, it could play out differently to that, all right? Because it's his call about what's going to happen. Now, the problem actually comes for us when he does something different to what we've... We've asked for something out here and he's, he's done something different in the specific and then our disappointment bleeds into our understanding of who God is and what his character is. And so we stop praying. You get, you get what I'm saying? It's like... Broadly, I know that you want to do this, so I'm praying this for this specific situation, but then God decides to do something else, and then we go, well, maybe you're not actually like that, and so we stop praying. 
Let me try one on for you. Does God want to heal the bodies of all of his children? Is that a broad or specific goal of God's, do you think? It's broad, right? Is it true that he wants to heal all the bodies of his children? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it will happen one day. Here's my next question. Will God heal every single person of every physical ailment when it happens to them? No, not necessarily. So you get the point here. Like the first one is like the broad character of God is, yes, God is doing this. The specific will of God in a particular situation could actually be different. And what you've got to be careful of is you've got to be careful with your disappointment with the specific expression of what God's doing bleeding into your view of his character and what he's like. You know, I've had people come up to me and, and they've hit me up about Isaiah and Isaiah 53.5, I think it is, and how by his stripes everyone's healed and um, that, you know, if you don't get healed physically, then you don't have enough faith. And I'm telling you, faith is important. Um, but I just want to say this morning, categorically, Jesus did not die on the cross for the full and complete immediate healing of every single physical ailment that happens to one of his kids. He did for the ultimate healing of all of that, but it's not for every single immediate healing. We don't believe that here, and I don't believe that the Scriptures teach that. And this guy came up to me once and just hit me up big time, right? And he said, <laughs> he said it's a lack of faith, and he just got stuck into me. He started getting stuck into me publicly when I was doing this presentation, and then he was headed for me at morning tea, but one of my mates kind of intercepted him and just kind of hit him up, all right? And my mate said to him, he said, you know what the biggest problem with your whole theology about the fact that Jesus died on the cross and it means that everyone could be healed of everything whenever they're sick immediately? You know what the problem with that is that everyone's died. <laughs> Do you get the point? Like everyone died. Like the curse of sin got everyone anyway. There was only two people in the whole of human history that didn't die. Enoch and Elijah. Elijah caught a cab, all right, to heaven. Fiery chariot cab, all right. And Enoch just disappeared. I love that. I mean, this is Genesis 5.24. It's got nothing to do really with what I'm talking about. But Enoch was and then he wasn't because God took him. That's cool, isn't it? And I mean, you just imagine how long did they look for him? You know, we got the Coast Guard out. We got, where the heck did this guy go? Well, he's just gone, all right? He didn't die. For everyone else, people die, right? For all of us at some level, even if we get temporary healing, our healing is to come, isn't it? A complete and full healing. I mean, there's no better healing, is there not, than everlasting life indestructible life so here's the thing going back to my circles on the board there our problem is that our specific disappointments bleed into the broad understanding of who god is and it stops us praying so what do we do well we get an understanding of what god's broad kind of will is and we pray for specifics and then we submit ourselves to what god wants to do this is exactly what Jesus did in Mark 14, 36. Remember that? In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is there. He prays for God to release him from the, or for a way out, from the, the, uh, the end point that he was coming to. And then he said, not my will, but your will. Now, 
Let me just mess with your heads just for a moment, all right? And I hope you stay with me on this, okay? Is it God's broad will? Maybe I shouldn't even do this, but I'm going to. Is it God's broad will that an innocent person be murdered? All right? So all I'm really saying there, but, but it was actually God's specific will in that moment, right? So this is just going to massively mess with your heads probably, all right? But you just have to get in your heads throughout the Bible. The Bible won't make sense to you if you don't have kind of a broad category for what God's will is and then an operational kind of detail-specific will, all right? Because it was God's will for Jesus to be executed. It was, right? But at the same time, it wasn't. So what does that tell you? It just tells you that God's unconventional sometimes. And he accomplishes sometimes this bit with specific things that don't always fit in neatly with the outside bit. Does that, does that make sense? Don't want to kind of go too deep in there. We may not ever come up for air. So let's go back to this question. What is God's will? Let me, uh, let's see if I can have two or three people uh, who have read the scriptures uh, tell me, what, what's God's will? What is some, just give me two or three things that God likes to do that you know from the Bible. Bless us. All right? Redemption. Save people. One more. Bring glory to himself. All right? So here's the thing. Here's the big idea. You pray that kind of stuff, you're on a sure winner. All right? You're praying stuff that God's up to that's in line with his character and his name and his purposes. You're going to be sweet with that. Right? And here's the thing. If you don't pray that and you pray things that he's not happy to do, then don't expect it to go well. All right? So here's the thing. If you've got a plan to go out at night and get blind drunk, don't pray that God's going to protect you. Do you get my point? Because he says don't get drunk. It's like, is it God's will? <laughs> is it in God's sovereign kind of will that someone should be able to go out and get blind drunk and be safe? Well, probably not. Now, he's gracious and merciful, so he might do that. All right? But in terms of his overall will, that's not what he's up to. All right? God, I'm going to have a beer at the vault. Would you protect my mind from evil thoughts? <laughs> God, I pray that this gossip doesn't get back to the person that I'm gossiping about. <laughs> pray in accord with his will and let him look after what is right for the moment. Amen? But in all this, don't pray small. Pray big. Because he is able to do far beyond what you ask or even imagine. So you need to use your imagination. Verse 21, glory. Have a look at verse 21 there. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. You know what glory is? Glory is honour, greatness and power. In the Old Testament, the brightness and the radiance of God's presence was his glory. You see, giving glory to God never adds anything to God. It only acknowledges and extols who he is and what he has done. Listen to this from Psalm 29:2. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his court, Psalm 96 says. But here's the thing. Humanity steals glory, right? Here's the bottom line. We're just all glory thieves. We want glory. We want to be in the center. We actually want 
at the end of the day, a lot of us, if not all of us, I think, want to be the object of worship. Listen to what uh, Paul Tripp says. Paul Tripp says, Sin makes us glory thieves. There's probably not a day when we do not plot to steal glory that rightfully belongs to the Lord. At the bottom of a broken marriage, a shattered family or a forsaken friendship, you always find stolen glory. We crave glory that does not belong to us and we step on one another to get it. Rather than glorifying God by using the things he has given us to love other people, we use people to get the glory we love. And just pushing a little bit further into this whole notion of glory, uh, i tell you one thing that is absolutely true. You just see time and time again in Hollywood and with celebrities, you see humanity cannot handle the weight of glory. They just can't. And they can't handle it because they weren't made for it. Like it just destroys them. And you, you would have seen that yourself. Like if you had, have had a moment where you're really, really success, successful and you're getting accolades from people, that is a particularly dangerous moment. It's really important what you do with glory at that point in time because it'll kill you. Now go back to Ephesians 3 there. This is a bit startling. What's the first cab off the rank about how God gets glory? Verse 21, to him be glory in the what? In the what? In the church. All right. The messy place where Christians hang out. True? Now some of you ought to be sitting there and you just go... <laughs> Is that translated properly? You've been in churches, you've been around uh, churches, you just go, oh, oh, that's weird. <laughs> Isn't the, you know, I thought the church is a place where, like, they sometimes work together and then they have disagreements. Uh, and I've seen the church and it's a place where people help each other, but I've also seen the church and it's a place where people hurt one another. You know, people come up to me quite frequently and they say, uh, hey, how's church going? And one of my typical kind of replies to them is I say to them, right, hey, well, it's full of sinners and it's led by a sinner. So what do you reckon? I don't say, what do you reckon? But that's, that's my tone of voice. It's, it's going to be messy. But here's the thing. You know what Paul's saying here in Ephesians 3? If it's filled by sinners and it's led by sinners, it's going to be great. Why? Because God's there. Because God's in it. It's going to be amazing because God's power and his presence is there. I, um, in a former life, I was a manual arts teacher and uh, as a kid, I uh, used to build and try to build lots of things. And um, the, the phrase that was coined in my university training actually was that a hammer will fix anything, which is true. It actually will. Um, but... Uh, in like just totally fix it anyway um i remember when i was a younger kid uh, i'd be building something and it would just start going wrong and i'd start getting frustrated and angry and be threatened to fix it with a hammer <laughs> you know what my dad would say to me a poor workman always blames his tools at which point i thanked my father and gave him a hug A lot of help there in the moment, isn't there? 
But there's something in that, right? There's something in it. It was a, uh, maybe a truth delivered um, at a different time uh, <coughs> would have been more helpful, I would think. But do you know that there is something in that? There is a truth that kind of, there's a kernel of truth in there. If you think about the church, the church can be pretty patchy, right? I've, uh, I've been talking with a couple of people recently who you'd say have been spiritually abused. And it's, it's uh, I don't know whether you've ever spoken to someone who's been in a church that's got a real kind of uh, almost cultish kind of flavour to it. Uh, control and powers kind of, and fears are kind of a pretty big thing. And it's really, it's quite fascinating. Like these two people are from, they don't even know each other. They're from t- two totally different contexts. And it's just been really fascinating to just see, I mean, it just feels like they're just a little adrift at sea. Uh, and it just kind of sounds like that when you talk to them. Um, I was talking to someone recently about that and some other things. And I just said to them, you know, um, churches uh, are, a, are incredibly healing wonderful place but church also uh, has a way of hurting people very deeply doesn't it and I'll tell you something it's not just people in the church that get hurt by churches it's also leaders that get hurt by churches and the thing is that there's something about the hurt that happens in churches sometimes that just cuts really really deep and it cuts deeper than anything else you can cop the you don't mind me saying, you can cop the crap that comes at work sometimes, but for some reason, what happens in churches can be deep and very, very intense. So what do you do? You throw the church out, right? It's a dodgy chainsaw that keeps kicking back on you all the time. And some of you maybe have been in churches like that. This goes dodgy. The whole thing about the church is dodgy. But I'll tell you something, God gets massive glory through the way that he uses the church because he's a master craftsman. Amen. And he can take the dodgiest of tools and do something wonderful with it. And that is actually what he does. Because the church is the masterpiece of God's grace. It's the realm of his presence and his authority. It's the instrument through which, Paul tells us, the wisdom of God is made known in the heavenly realms. Let me finish um, this little point here. There is an incredible blessing in being small and insignificant. We, we live in a culture that, I mean, you only have to go into social media, and I don't want to beat up on social media, but it just is. It's, it's all about glory. It's all about glory. It's all about people being big. You know, and I'm just telling you, like, uh, I think John Piper said, you don't go to the Grand Canyon to get a sense of your own significance. You go there to feel small. And I'll tell you, when you go somewhere in nature and you look at something grand and you feel small, it feels really good. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? And it feels bad when you're trying to be big. And that is all about glory. That's what it's about. Because you're actually made to give glory and to worship another a uh, fellow that was in uh, my redemption group in uh, Fort Worth last year um, posted this, uh, this quote on uh, his Facebook account. And uh, I, th- I think I'm just going to make it my life motto. <laughs> this is it. 
See, that, that's bliss. Do you believe it? That's bliss. I want to be the boy with the five loaves and two fish that no one ever knew his name. And I've been praying that. I want to be that. I want to be that kid. Do you? See, it's not that you're not significant. It's just that you pale into insignificance compared to him. And you know, the greatest Christian person on the face of the planet of all history is not even going to be noticed, I don't think, when Jesus comes back. They'll be forgotten. And I just I, I want to encourage you today <laughs> that there's a blessing in being small. There's a blessing in being a kid with five loaves and two fish that just shows up at the right time, that no one knows his name, and no one they talk about him for the rest of history, human history, but he's forgotten. We don't know who he was, we don't know his last name, we don't know how old he was, we don't know anything about him. You know, and you've got stories of that through the scriptures, you know, you've got the, the little girl in the Old Testament that um, showed Naaman where to find Elijah, right, or Elisha. Who was she? I don't know. I want to be her. I want to be her. Come back with me to Ephesians 3. We, we have gone through some very deep theology in Ephesians. And today is actually the end of Paul unfolding deep theology. And next week, you know what we're going to be doing? We're going to be doing a, if that, then. That's, a, that's where it's going. And the whole of the rest of Ephesians is about, okay, if all that theology is true, what do we do with it? What does it look like? What does a real true human actually look like? And what you've actually got in, uh, in the back end of Ephesians 3 there is, uh, is Paul just busting out into worship. And this is why I'm preaching and we haven't sung yet. Okay? Because all good... Theology ends with doxology. Some of you are going, oh, I don't even know what that is. What's theology? Well, Pete, you talk about it a lot. Here it is. Theology is really complex, the study of God. There you go. That's what theology is. Doxology. All right, let me read this to you. Doxology passed into English from medieval Latin. Doxologia, which in turn comes from the Greek term doxa, meaning opinion or glory. And the suffix logia, which refers to oral or written expression. Oral, written, singing, worship. It's got to go public. I remember someone a while ago saying that um, God's glory is his character and his holiness on display. So you put it on display, you give him glory. Paul bursts out of theology into doxology. And that's what we need to do. We need to erupt like uncontrollably erupt into worship because of who God is. Listen to what J.I. Packer says. As I often tell my students, theology is for doxology and devotion. That is the praise of God and the practice of godliness. 
It should therefore be presented in a way that brings awareness of the divine presence. Listen to this. Theology is at its healthiest when it is consciously under the eye of the God of whom it speaks and when it is singing to his glory. So I want to just uh, pause for a minute. I'm just going to go back to that in a minute. But uh, I want to pause for a minute. And we've got a uh, whiteboard out the front here. And I have a trusty assistant, uh, Chris, who's going to come out and, uh, and write on the whiteboard for me. And uh, I want you, if you've been at the project for a little bit, and even if you hadn't, haven't, have your Bibles open in front of you and, uh, and look at Ephesians 1 to 3. And I'd just love for you to shout out some things that we've, we've learnt to be true about God. Like at the end of the day, Ephesians 1 to 3, we've been studying God. We've been doing theology for a while now. Okay? So what have you actually learned about God? Just little kind of snippets uh, and Chris will kind of um, write them down on the board up here. What have you got? Tell us stuff that we've learned about God. He made us alive. Excellent. Actually, is there someone else who want to come out and help too and write on the other side of the board? Good on you, Sam. Thanks for volunteering. That's great. Appreciate it. She's, she's shooting daggers at me in the head now. All right, what else? What's that? He saved us as a gift. Yeah. Next. He has a plan. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Let's just... Um, that's good. Keep going in that direction. But let me just kind of help to sharpen you a little bit. Just let's throw some stuff in there that's about his character and what he's like. All right, as well. Sorry? Sorry? He's very kind. Yeah, wonderful kindness. Keep throwing the other ones in too. But let's make sure we're thinking about God's character and not just what he's doing for us. He's generous, incredibly generous. Lavish. Mysterious. Yeah, he's deep. Next. Yeah, yeah, he's adopted us into his family. Like, who's doing that? Everything all right? Yeah. Cool. He's merciful. Powerful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, huge. He keeps promises. Immeasurable greatness. He reveals himself, yeah. What about this one? I, I, I love this one as, as we've gone along, is that he gives in proportion to his infinite... He gives in proportion to his infinity, almost. That's what we've heard on and on. It's like, yeah, I'll have a proportion of that. Keep going. Yeah, yeah. Power to bring uh, death to life, yeah. He reconciles us, yeah, it's great. Yeah, makes his wisdom known to us. Yeah. Two more. He's a peacemaker. Oh, yeah. Isn't that, I mean, think about, and they're all great, right? But it just, it just struck a chord with me just then, right? Think about that. There's a lot of people that are peacekeepers. What's the difference between a peacekeeper and a peacemaker? Well, a peacemaker actually deals with the stuff, don't they? They're not just kind of just paper mashing over things and trying to get people to get on, 
talk civilly to one another. They're just kind of going, we're actually going to deal with the stuff that's going on here so there is actual peace. Yeah. One more, sorry? Absolutely. Yeah, sorry, is a hand up there? Yeah, come on. That's a good place to end. He's my father. That's great. Thanks, you too. Give him a round of applause, eh? All theology must lead to doxology. All theology must lead to doxology. All study of God must lead to worship. I want you to hear me today. Theology that does not lead to doxology and devotion is bad theology. Theology that does not lead to doxology and devotion is bad theology. There are lots of good reasons on the board here to just spin into worship right now, isn't there? You with me? There is. Here's the thing though. The danger in Toowoomba is in Toowoomba churches in particular is probably not that we don't sing worship and that we don't express worship. Like if there's a weakness in Toowoomba, it's probably not doxology as much. I mean the Hillsong and there's been a bunch, there's been such a move in terms of singing worship and we think worship's way broader than just singing worship but singing worship is part of that and so churches have kind of embraced that all right i I would actually suggest in toowoomba the danger in toowoomba is that we wouldn't actually have underpinning theology so you, you can't say that the truth about god is unimportant i read this uh article by matt boswell he said this he said theology without doxology leads to legalism And doxology without theology leads to existentialism and sensationalism. And I think it's an incredibly perceptive statement. You see, if you do theology and you don't do doxology and worship, you become a rule keeper. You know, and you want to kind of split things up. You want to know everything, but at the end of the day, it doesn't stir your heart. And unfortunately, you only have to go to a bunch of Bible colleges, select Bible colleges, and you'll find this happening. True? You find this happening. You find people studying theology and not ending in worship, spontaneous worship to God. But the other extreme is dangerous too, and we're probably more um, likely to head in this direction. Doxology without theology leads to existentialism, where you're the centre of your world, and sensationalism, where you present God in a way that provokes interest and excitement without accuracy. (laughs) Have you seen this? Like it doesn't matter, like some churches it's like, and I'm not necessarily bagging them, right? Because we need to grow in this sort of stuff too, right? But some churches you go in there and it's like, what we're after is the experience and we'll just do whatever we need to do to get there. And Paul would just go, no. (laughs) No, that's not how it works. You've always got to have theology flowing into doxology. They've got to be married all the time. I mean, you've probably been in churches and, and this church probably at different times, we've sung songs that are very, very emotive but don't really actually say that much. They don't actually say much theologically. And it's kind of like sometimes you can, like the vibe sometimes in, in Christendom is you can just sing any song, as long as you emote something toward God, it doesn't really have to say that much. I mean, one of my favourite songs to sing 
is a Hillsong song, and it does say something, but it's actually a bit thin. And I, I kind of, I like to sing it, and I like to sing it when I'm worshipping God in my own kind of personal time, but when I sing it, I just kind of go, I just don't really feel like I'm singing much right now. I love the tune, and I love, there is some theology in there, but I, there's, I'm just saying from my point of view, there's, it's just a bit thin at times for me. But, and don't, some of you go, oh, he's bagging Hillsong now, all right? God's judgment is about to fall, all right? Well, I don't know whether you noticed, but we sing heaps of Hillsong. And Hillsong writes some great songs, you know, but it's just true. I just think it's just true that there are times, there are Christian worship songs out there that are like fairy floss. And they look substantial and they look good, but when you kind of bite into them, it just kind of melts away. You know, let's, let's make sure that we sing songs that are good songs, right? Because the other side of the fence, which I've been involved with, is, um, is a very conservative, I mean, evangelical. Last year, we were part of a conservative evangelical kind of church planting mob, and they were so focused on theology, their songs are terrible. I just didn't like them. And I used to, Matt came with me, he goes, oh, this is a really good song. And I'm just going, I can't even sing it, man. I just can't sing it. All right, so can we not find people who can do theology and doxology at the same time? And there are people out there, right? What am I saying? I'm not saying let's turn the project into a bunch of arrogant people who go around and bag people for their songs. I'm just saying be discerning about the songs that you listen to and the songs that you sing and be discerning. I mean, our worship leaders in the project need to be discerning about the songs that we sing in church. Because we don't, I don't really want us to have fairy floss songs. But I also don't want us to have songs that are so heavy on theology, but they're just crazy difficult to sing. Like, I, uh, I went to a conference and this dude got up, and I appreciated the guy's heart, right? But he, he wrote this song and he sang this song. Um, I think it was about the imputation of Christ's righteousness, right? Now, some of you go, oh, I don't even know what that is, all right? But it's okay, because you don't need to know what that is to get my point, right? But he actually, he, he sang this song and he used those words. And I'm just going, you know, that's just really hard to sing imputation, <laughs> all right? And it's not that it's not true, but it's like, okay, let's, let's see if we can get the giftedness and, and the, uh, the creativity and the theology together. I think that's what Paul does here i'm going to quote c.s lewis uh here he's got this uh great little uh comment that he makes about this he says for my own part i tend to find the doctrinal books often more helpful in devotion than the devotional books and i rather suspect that the same experience may await others i believe that many who find that nothing happens when they sit down or kneel down to a book of devotion would find that the heart sings unbidden while they are working their way through a tough bit of theology with a pipe in their teeth and a pencil in their hand. And all the kids in the church go, see, we're allowed to smoke. Because <laughs> C.S. Lewis said we can. You get the point? And so I would just ask you, do you tackle the hard stuff? And I'll tell you something that's true, is I just have to. Now, you go, well, it's, it's your job, mate. You know, kind of. But you just need to know, I, I, I loved reading deep theological books for years before I got into this job. And do you know, probably half of the book, 
for two-thirds of the book sometimes, I didn't even understand. Have you ever had that experience where you read something, you go, this is really deep. I haven't got a clue what they're talking about, but this is good. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? And you're just kind of immersing yourself in it. And you just, it's that feeling like you're just going, there is a profundity and a depth just on the other side of where I am right now that I just don't even get. And I just want to hang around in the vicinity of this profundity, even if I don't actually get it. You tackle the deep stuff. And what am I saying? I'm not saying you have to read the same books that I read or Cole Patterson or Sam Baker. Like, what's the next layer in for you? That's just a little bit beyond where you are. Go and get one of those books and read that. And, and you'll find, I think Lewis is right. You know, you just can't live off fairy floss, right? And there's so much depth there in God that you can actually learn. You know, John Piper, uh, I once heard him say, if you rake, you get leaves. If you dig, you might get gold. I think it's true. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to just transition us uh, into uh, worship, singing worship. And you all came in worshipping anyway. Okay, the project believes that God made you worshipping all the time. And I'm going to transition us into it by talking about a word that you probably don't hear that often and you probably don't use. And if you do, I'd love to meet you. Um, I used it before, but I don't normally use it. It's the word extol. Extol. Let me give you some synonyms for extol. Praise enthusiastically. Go into raptures about or over. Wax lyrical about. Sing the praises of. Praise to the skies. Heap praise on. Eulogize. Rhapsodize over. Rave about. Enthuse about. Over. Gush about or over. Throw bouquets at. Express delight over. Acclaim. Wild about. Be mad about. And go on about. So you, you extol. You do. You do, you do extol. And, and here's the thing. Um, people don't use this word that often anymore and I'm not you know I'm not kind of campaigning for a return to the use of the word extol but I'll tell you something about our culture is our culture has a way of destroying words and the usefulness of words and sometimes it helps us to go backwards and to use a word historically that we don't use because it actually describes something that's really hard to describe using our language because we've abused it and I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, Google Books has got a kind of a, a search engine kind of thing with um, the stuff that they've got on record that maps um, how words have been used in literature over a certain period of time. So you can see up here on the board, on the screen, I should say, that uh, back in the 1800s, uh, the red line there is extol with a lowercase e. Um, was being used quite a bit and it's just gone out of existence almost or, or right down and uh, I'm not I'm bagging on anyone for not using extol like you know you can still come to church if you never <laughs> use the word all right but here's the thing uh, we live in a culture I mean we live in a culture where everything's awesome And here's the problem with our culture. Our culture overuses superlatives. And you know, if everything's awesome, nothing's awesome. 
And here's the big, big problem with uh, the superlatives we use. Actually, let me give you a few more superlatives other than awesome. It's revolutionary, transformative, impactful, life-changing, ultimate, extreme, awesome, emergent, alternative, innovative, on the edge. The next big thing, it's an explosive breakthrough. You hear this stuff, right? Do you know the problem with our abuse of superlatives is that we have no more language left to describe God. What do, you, what do you, like if an ice cream is awesome? I mean, the other day I said that God was awesome and it felt weird. Because I was standing there and I'm, I'm just thinking, I think you're probably going to think I think he's cool. Do you know what awe is? Awe is reverence mixed with fear. That's what awe is. So at the project, I'm just letting you know, whatever I'm here, and uh, I will not be here forever, um, but whatever I'm here, I will keep talking to you about old words. Because we love God, and I love God, and I want Him to be seen clearly, and we need old words to do it, because awesome is just not going to do it. It is true that God is awesome, but it's just not going to do it, because we overuse superlatives. And I'm going to keep talking to you and we will keep talking to you about theology and worship together because they're connected in the Bible and they're connected in real life. And we will, at the project, be deep and passionate people because that's the kind of people that God's interested in making.